0: I got really pulled over the coals by my head of department. I published this thing in, in the Guardian newspaper. The the cartoon was better than the text. So it's got this picture of, you know, like a university don on all fours, kind of spewing books, you know. And the byline was, you know, it might be readable, able but is it readable?
1: Welcome to Surviving Society. With Chantel Lewis and Tiso Regis. Executively produced by Georgia Forey Addo. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon. If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing. Are you interested in some further reading on social movements and left politics? you should be if you're listening to surviving society red pepper is a quarterly magazine and website of politics and culture it is a space for debate on the left and a home for open-minded socialists red pepper is reader funded with a sliding scale subscription model ensuring its content is available to all find a link to red pepper magazine in the episode notes welcome to another episode of surviving society i am really excited today to be joined in the studio by my guest host catherine median who is lecturer in sociology the open university catherine is also surviving society alumni guest Mm -hmm. host thank you so much for coming in thanks for inviting me to host with you and today myself and catherine are going to be interviewing professor les back who is professor of sociology now at the university of glasgow and was also my PhD supervisor. Les has been on the show before, actually about four years ago now, just after you you had published your 10-year project, Migrant City, with Shamshir. We previously had Emma Jackson on the show, who's my other supervisor, and I had to give her all the flowers for how inspiring, how important she's been for my um, own intellectual project and work and just PhD supervision. But Les, exactly the same as you, like I literally wouldn't, finish wouldn't be sat here like the show wouldn't be what it is without you and emma and i am just so so grateful that i got to be supervised by you well, um it
0: was a joy chantelle and also it's a pleasure to be here and you know it's 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 a it's, it symbolizes to me what what's at stake in what we do yeah you know i i, I used to say um routinely to people uh, it was a wonderful a uh, young scholar who sadly was, who died very uh, tragically in a, a a road accident he came to be, interview me and said, what do, why do you do what you do? What, what is it you're up to? And I said, well, I think our job is, is to make ourselves obsolete. Mm. Our job is to, he said, no, you don't mean that. Paul Heinrich his name was, you should remember him. Wonderful person, very talented. Lived a short life, sadly. He said, you don't mean that. I said, no, I do mean it. So I think our task, I think our, our vocation is to carry the things that we care about as far as we can to do the work with as much seriousness and dedication as we can. And then you hand it over to others and you let them carry those preoccupations. That's, I think that's the vocation. I, I really do. So, yeah, proof of the pudding, Chantel. Here you are
1: oh like, I need to not cry I need to not cry oh, right. like because it is
0: I do it think it is, that's where we find our value the value yeah so you know and I have I have it there's been a, it's been a choppy time we're going to talk about that I'm yeah. sure mm. but I have not lost any commitment to that vocation and that sense of why it matters mm. um it's not the institutions it's not the baubles that are handed out to us that our value is measured you know Pierre Bourdieu was uh, was fond of saying, you know, truth isn't measured in clapometers. He was right. I think, you know, the value of what we do is measured in the people that we work with and what they carry beyond those conversations and the work that they do
1: oh, oh. Les, thank you so much and i'm so glad you sort of took that space and to do that because i was just going to be like gushing like les i wouldn't have be been able to do this about you I wouldn't be able to do that about you but yeah you're, you're right there. it's it's bigger than it's bigger than me but our relationship is integral to how i've been able to move forward as a scholar and you talking about that being the the work that you did with me being part of who you tried to be as an academic i think yeah. is yeah what i would like to do and i think what so many listeners would like to do as well so,
0: oh yeah, yeah. I, I i forget that i mean i'm a big fan of the show as you know so i I get that feeling too and I, I, how it, I mean how it lands with me to be honest with you is that, you know, I'm very mindful and have been very mindful in, in recent years of of actually what's been bestowed mm. um, to me, not just by my teachers, and I had great teachers, um, but also by colleagues, by people who have, you know, the traffic of hunches and and leads, which is what I think scholarship is all about, you know, your, your mate who says, if you read this book, it's really good, I think it's going to help you mm. or, you know. Maybe you should try it. Maybe you should go and talk to that. Why don't you just phone them up and talk to them? Th- that sort of encouragement, I think that's that's how those things are bestowed on us. And then I think it's incumbent on us as scholars and people who are interested in making sense of the world to pass those things on. Yeah. To be inhabited by them. Sometimes being, it's, be, it's being um, haunted by people, actually, who aren't with us. But like Paul, you know, I think about him all the time. Mm. Um and at the, at the same time, it's a, I, I think that it's, that, it's that movement through time mm-hmm. as a practice, thinking as a practice that I've always felt very clear about. And, and I haven't, you know, I'm not disenchanted with that at all.
1: Thanks so much, Les. And we're going to get into it straight away. I know you've spoken, I know you've written about more recently um, in the past year why you are actually leaving Goldsmiths. So Goldsmiths, if listeners don't know already, is where Les spent, you've spent all of your career, haven't
0: you? No, I haven't. But uh, but I've spent big chunks of it since. You know, thirty years then more or less. Thirty years,
1: and I guess it would be good for the listeners to kind of introduce where you're going now and why you found yourself, why you found yourself leaving Goldsmiths.
0: Yeah, I'm. I'm just, just by the time this is finished, I'll have started a new job and and a new challenge, really, at the University of Glasgow. I've always had a love for Glasgow and Scotland broadly, uh, but you know, there's lots of people at Glasgow that I've worked with over a long period of time and. You know, friends I admire, and the sort of spirit of scholarship there has always drawn me there, really, and I've been a regular visitor. So, in some ways, I've always had a lot of love of Glasgow. Mm. It's a, it's another port town. It's a very working class city. You know, when I was a kid, um, the only person who was on television in the nineteen seventies who ex- described a world that made any kind of sense to me at all was Billy Connolly. <laughs> you know, the stories he told about growing up in the tenements. You know. On the one hand, he was of that place and he captured it and he captured the humour, but also the sort of the the danger and the the violence in those places mm-hmm. uh, in, in a way that was extraordinary to me as a boy. I think, wow, you know, I remember he had this sketch about pap- the parties that were going and there'd be people downstairs doing the pub singing and the kids upstairs rolling around on the beds with, you know, inside the fur coats of the women who had been deposited mm-hmm. up there come to the party in the silkiness of the mm-hmm. of the line and i thought yeah i know what that feels like mm-hmm. that is a world that makes sense to me mm-hmm. so i've had a long uh, association and and, and connection uh, to the city so i was drawn there but you know i didn't think i'd ever leave goldsmiths uh, i had uh, worked as a researcher uh as, when i finished was finishing my phd you know i'd been Based in the Midlands, in the English Midlands. Oh yeah, probably... Les, I'm
1: so sorry. Like no, you were no. in Birmingham for ages. I was in Birmingham for ages and I loved <laughs> no, it there. I... Yeah, sure. so I don't know why so, yeah. like, I think I'm nervous nervous listeners, I
0: did I lived there I lived in the Midlands, I loved it there. You know, uh, I worked at the Institute of Education with Anne Phoenix, shared an office with Anne Phoenix, can you imagine? She straightened me out. What, actually. Yeah. She got me she's
1: inspired. so, she's so serious. What a legend. Yeah. No. Uh, anyway, lots of
0: lovely <laughs> stories about that. Funny thing about Anne, um, she's you know, still, a, we still see each other, always friendly. I always, I massively admired, admired her, but it was quite something, you know, to be sitting on the opposite desk thinking, okay, you've been blagging it this for all this time, you know, doing a bit of youth work, registering for a PhD that you don't think you're gonna finish, or maybe you will. Now I was sitting in the office with Anne, like, okay, serious, serious time, serious time to work. You need to finish this this thesis, and you also need to, you know, deliver on the project. So you know, I, I um, I went back to Goldsmiths after being in 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 the Midlands, and I'd studied there. I'd have been a student there. Goldsmiths, for the pe- for listeners who might not know, is based in New Cross in southeast London. It was set up really as a kind of educational institution to service the the working poor of southeast london for you know to teach people trades and practical skills um when i went there in 1981 it was just the, it was the year of the new cross fire where 13 young black kids were killed in a house fire and a 14th died two years later it was a place where there was a kind of renaissance of 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 black london life going on you know culturally politically there was real violence and there was real um um terrible violence and it's both institutionalized and popular um but also it was the world where you know Dennis Bovell the reggae producer was living just had been living down the street Lovers Rock had been invented there Mm -hmm. Linton Kwesi Johnson had studied sociology just a few years before I went there you know there were all stories about he was still you know performing locally and stories about him being chucked out of the library because nobody thought that you know, a young black guy going to the library could be doing anything other than something, you know, something wrong, you know. So there was there's this kind of incredible stirring of political and cultural life uh, all around the college. The college itself was a pretty much a white island in the midst of all of that, mm. um, much more than it is now. Richard Hoggart, who was the you know, famous author of the use of his literacy, was the warden he'd gone there because of his commitment to what he thought of as you know a broader sense of, of education and the college had a night cl- a night kind of class college as well as the degrees so it was an amazing place and it caught my imagination changed my life you know um and uh, so i studied there and then had the opportunity to go back when paul gilroy was teaching at uh, at goldsmiths and work with him that was amazing you know Paul was had the office downstairs. Vicky Bell was across the it was kind of an incredible time to be there. You know, a very young Steve McQueen, the film director, would be sitting outside of Paul's office waiting to get a tutorial and talk about ideas. He was studying art. You know, it was an, an amazing experience. So and I, you know, really loved teaching there. The kinds of students that came through the door, the relationship between the university and the and the wider community that was my project you know I, I, I lived locally I wrote about things which were that seemed close at hand um, some years later I was asked to give um, a, a lecture in the anthropology department where I'd studied um, and uh, you know there's this very famous book by Levi Strauss called the view from afar um, and I uh, I remember thinking, well, it's actually what I've done is I've cultivated the view from nearby. That's what I've been interested in. So I thought I would never leave. Uh, and then, you know, a, a really difficult combination of, of things. Um, the, the fortunes of the college rose. It was a wonderful thing to be part of. Then there were difficulties both in terms of how the impact of the audit culture... Played locally, Goldsmiths sociology was doing really well, and then we were chastened and not, and and uh, taken down a few pegs in the in the um, research assessment exercise. Brexit happened, which had a really difficult um, consequence at Goldsmiths. The pandemic, and then you know the shifts that were happening in higher education, and and as a as a result, an institution like Goldsmiths, which is a bit like. You know a UK equivalent of a liberal arts college in America. suddenly in this very squeezed um, circumstance, you know, industrial action, redundancies, watching people being made redundant, the way the institution treated them, and I got to a point during the second strike when I just thought, I can't keep taking my salary and watch this. I can't. You know, we talked about Emma, mm-hmm. Emma Jackson, who I think is an extraordinary fact. You know. Uh, it was one of the great pleasures of my week this week to take, you know, a, a, a tin of Mr Sheen and a duster and clean the office that Emma is going to be taking over from yeah. me. Aww. So, um, she will take my place as the director of the Centre for Urban and Community Research, which is a job I've been doing for the last five years. But you know, the thought of going, of going into uh, this kind of euphemistic thing called consultation, which really means a redundancy process, mm-hmm. alongside people like Emma Jackson, who I taught as an undergraduate graduate who I also helped with, uh, was one of her supervisors. Other people that I knew and cared about and loved. The thought of, you know, being in the midst of that, I, th- I just got to the point I thought, a point, that's a step too far for me. Mm. Um, and uh, I realised that it was <sighs> untenable for me to stay because, you know, I'd had 29 great years there ups and downs but mostly great it'd been a very enabling place for me so I'd had some really good years um you know I'm getting along in the tooth and I'm expensive and you start mm-hmm. and I think that's one of the things that the the way in which higher education has, has gone and shifted into a much more sort of commercialized logic of value away from the idea of education as a public service and a public calling. I started to realise how those things break on you. You know, mm. you start to think, well, hold on a minute. You look around the room and think, well, actually, my salary is two with those two junior colleagues over mm. there. I just couldn't, be, I couldn't live with it. So that was the, the the bottom line. You know, and I had difficulties. Things that you know, I, there were a lot other things going on in my life that were also challenging. And I just thought, you know, I can't, I can't do this anymore. Um, and and in a way, um, you know, Stuart Hall was who's yeah, the great cultural theorist. Somebody I was blessed to know a little bit, you know, not as a friend, but as um, as a sort of kind of looming mentor-like figure. You know, he he would always say, now are you worth your salt? Uh, isn't he, an intellectual worth it? His or her salt would do." Blah blah blah. And I mm. thought, well, I don't know if I can. I, I don't know if I can square it, the idea of, you know, the cost and also the space, uh, the, you know, being a sort of established member of staff in this kind of environment and watching people, you know, who'd given their lives to the calling of education just be kind of cast aside. You know, one of the things that really struck me was how... Um, Universities, as institutions, you know, on the one hand, they can treat academics with disregard, but you know, teaching involves more than those of us who have the who are blessed to stand up in front of people and say, "This is what we think is important." You mm-hmm. know, everybody who works in universities is involved in teaching, from the from the person at the front desk to the to the department secretary. And there was one um, friend, really, who who I'd worked with for you know 20 years or more, who who was the department secretary in sociology? She was single-handedly, probably. Violet Fear on her name, is. we should say her name. Yes. She, she's more. She's responsible for getting more students through than anybody else in that place. Mm. She just is. You know, there's another person there I work with called Bridget Ward, who was the postgraduate secretary. Same, you know, so many times.
1: I don't know if I would have got through my first year without Bridget. Well,
0: there you are. Yeah. You know, it's proof of the pudding, yeah. isn't it, Chantelle? And I, th- yeah. and I think, you know, when you see people like that being... You know, t- treated with disregard, um, and and being brushed aside, treated, and you know, tr- more than disregard. You know, it's offensive. Mm-hmm. The level of di- of um, the way that those those people were, were taught.
1: I think. Well, actually,
0: the thing that is beautiful about a university is the environment in which thinking takes place and learning yeah. takes place, and that involved it, when it works well, and and you know. I... I had been really happy at Goldsmiths. It's an, a beautiful thing to be part of. Mm. It just is. But you know, I think in in, in the midst of the the um, industrial action and the redundancies and that stuff, I just I just got to a point. Where I thought, well, I hope I really hope, that it, in, you know, deeply that the institution survives mm. because it's mm. been a place of of expanded opportunity for so many. Um. But it isn't the custodians of the university that do that. No. It's all those people involved in. Yes. Have you spoken to Chantelle recently, Bridget would say, or whoever it was? I think they're struggling. I think they're struggling. Maybe she dropped about well, Maybe she mm. mm-hmm. should reach out to them. That's yeah. how. That's
2: yeah.
0: that's the, the, the magic of learning.
2: So you're going to Glasgow, which yeah. is very exciting. Congratulations. Thank
0: you.
2: So you were just talking about how so much of your, I guess, intellectual project was the local, right? Yeah. And a lot of that was based in Newcross. Yeah and Birmingham and elsewhere. But so what does what does going the move the actual geographical move to Glasgow signal for a Londoner who has done so much work in London and England? Yeah.
0: Well, a lot of things actually. Um, what does it mean? Well, it's not like there's a spirit, you know. I, I think uh, it was interesting. You should ask me this question because it was one of the things that was asked in my interview. <laughs> was it? Oh,
2: see, this and, is Catherine. Uh, Catherine. What, HR?
0: No. <laughs> no, 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 no. No, I won't, I won't, I won't, uh, I won't embarrass the person who the question. Just observe it. So like, why, why, why do you want to go? What? I mean, you know, it's, I've had, there's been a lot of questions. We don't
2: want about. the interview
0: answer, though. No, no, I'm going to give you... Work, uh, the, uh, it's the same answer, really. <laughs> it's the same answer. I, I think that thing about... What we do, our craft, I, I think, is, is to cultivate a sensibility and attentiveness to the world. Now, I happen to tr- be training that attentiveness in particular places, partly out of, you know, investment, commitment, fascination, but partly, you know, I, I think it's about where you take it mm-hmm. and the kind of things that you're interested in, in doing and being engaged with. So I think it is about place often and, and investments in place but I don't think it necessarily is tied to place Mm. does that make sense Mm. so it's not necessarily that take you take yourself out of that context and you can't do your work anymore I just think it's you 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 cultivate it in a different with in a different place with different and, and be nourished by new things and that's partly what's been attractive to me is to be challenged a bit you know to be pushed a bit to suddenly you know those things that you're familiar with to not be there anymore and you've got to figure out what to do next and what's interesting and um, in, a, in a way, although there's lots of people at the, univ- the University of Glasgow, particularly in sociology that I really admire and are friends really. But also I got a little bit involved in the life of the city. There's an extraordinary organisation there called Vox Limonis, which is really hard to describe. Uh, Fergus McNeil, the criminologist, has been involved in doing a project with Vox and another person there called Alison Yuris is an extraordinary person. I got to meet them because of Student, I'd worked with a PhD student went to work for their for their project as a as a postdoc. Um, but there's a project there um, which is really about using music and songwriting as a bridge between the prison life and, and the prison experience and the wider context. And so, you know, these incredible they did these incredible things. It really caught my imagination where they get people who are top flight musicians and songwriters to go into prisons. And write and, and run workshops and write songs with the people inside that are collaborative, and then those songs travel, even if the people have, who have written them have to stay behind the prison walls, and the movement of those songs connect people. But also, you know, following the music when uh, the ex-prisoners come out and and try to establish the terms of a free life. Um, they they go on Tuesday night and do songwriting workshops in in Vox uh, Liminus's premises. It's just opposite the Barrowlands ballrooms in the ballroom in the East end of Glasgow. And I I went there um, and met the people and just thought, wow, what an amazing thing! And uh, and so you know, I've, I, there's projects and things going on there that really have caught my imagination. And I thought, well, wow. so I'm I'm going to be down there every Tuesday, you know.
2: <laughs> amazing.
0: Um, and so. Yeah, so there's, it, there's, there's, there's lots of really interesting, and, and you know, for somebody who's been trying to figure out what the hell is going on in England for a long time, um, the prospect of being outside of England, um, and seeing the world from a different place, and seeing the world differently and thinking about the world differently is, is something I, you know, I feel I, I could do with actually. And the challenge of it.
1: Listening to you talk, then Les mm. I was I was thinking about your kind, your intellectual project, and there'll be a lot of listeners that particularly that write or research or um, are interested in race and class. Then you're top of their reading list. You're top of their citations or how they make sense of England um, mm. in particular. And I was thinking about sometimes when I think about your work, and again, it's because it's mainly obviously because I was supervised by you, but also how I come to think and write about race and class is very much inspired by um, your trajectory and who inspired you, etc. But I w- definitely would see your in- intellectual project is divided into different kind of eras, yeah. and um, the era I think that that definitely helped inform my PhD research and how I think about race and class kind of starts from like 1990 to maybe like 2003. Like thinking about like race, ethnicity, place, the city, uh, place, of the city, all those sorts of things. And then you get into a kind of like era of talking about what is sociology for, which kind of coincides with sociology having a conversation with itself about public sociology. And then, but alongside all of this has always been the kind of emphasis on um, music and culture as well. Mm But I would also, but I, but tell me if I'm wrong, but definitely within the last sort of five to 10 years, I feel like that's been quite a big part of what you've been moving into. And I actually I thought about, I forgot another era, another era of sport mm. and football, and like mm. that being kind of the noughties to like the tens. Um, there will, I'm not just mad, there will be other people that I reckon understand, <laughs> like understand your scholarship in this way as well and have followed it in that way. And I guess, it would be maybe good to just talk if we could talk anecdotally about that intellectual project because I know Catherine you you said that in just coming to Les's work you see it as
2: I think the sociable sociology really encapsulates it from Migrant City doesn't it like that kind of centering the voices of letting people tell their own stories on their own terms right Um, and centering the voices of those that you're researching in a way that really works against so many of the harmful stereotypes and productions of particular communities as disenfranchised as not having a voice, etc. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely.
1: That's perfect. So I'm kind of, so my introduction there is talk, talking about your empirical work as well as the development of your scholarship. But then obviously alongside of that is your large methodological project, which has inspired so many people and like thinking about the art of listening in particular. Mm. So like, yeah, I do see your work in kind of like eras and I guess It would be good to maybe talk about what era you're in now but what those different eras taught you about being a sociologist and what sociology is for Mm. because i think that yeah lots of your the tensions in your writing i feel that in my own work i feel that in my own scholarship my own intellectual projects and i think it is it it is very particular isn't it Mm. to our. how we think about people and what what Catherine said.
2: And not just what sociology is for, but who it's for, which was something yes, you were talking about yeah. before, wasn't it? I don't want to paraphrase no. you, but you was talking about this, you know, in the Discover Society article you wrote last year, Les, about... Um, who who our audience is, who we imagine we're speaking to, and who we're doing this work for, which mm. goes back to this centering of particular voices, or or actually get you know passing the mic and actually yeah. letting other people tell their own stories in their own terms, yeah. and using the platform that you've cultivated in order to do that work, right? Which is so important. So we don't just think it's like what is sociology, but who who who, who yeah. are we, why are we why are we doing
1: this? Yeah, yeah. and yeah, yeah, that's perfect, Catherine. And then just to final final the, finalize the question. I don't think your way of doing scholarship is necessarily one that people is, is a is a common is common amongst sociologists. No. I don't um, think it is. And really? I, I know, and it's a I think it's a shame, but I understand I think neoliberalism is probably the main reason yeah. why. Um, and it's not yeah. pre- precarity. Yeah and maybe the space and the, the intellectual freedom that maybe you've had within your career that, that coincides with a particular conjuncture and policy and mm. funding, all that sort of thing. Yeah, so well, it's, a, it's quite, we're, we're talking about your life's work basically. Yeah, well, <laughs>
0: it's, very, it's a huge compliment yeah. to talk you, for you to talk in, in, those, in that way and in those terms, and there's a lot to try and mm. focus on within everything that you said. I mean, I think that thing about what is possible and the conditions f- for thought and thinking and writing is really an important overarching aspect of all of those, the, the, you know, the complex detail of how I can answer your question, honestly, mm-hmm. um, and I think, you know, when I started out as a researcher, you know, nobody had finished their PhD at the Department of Social Anthropology at Goldsmiths when I started, nobody. Lots of people had started. No one had ever finished. Can you imagine an academic department full of postgraduate research students when no one ever finishes? You know, and I remember when the sort of the the cloud of 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 metric culture of being measured of completion rates of citation when that was just on the horizon. My PhD supervisor, a woman called Patricia Kaplan, is an extraordinary person. I'm mean, going to see her tomorrow, actually. Um, she said, Les, nobody has ever finished a PhD in social anthropology at Goldsmiths College. It was called Goldsmiths College in those days. And I went, I thought, <laughs> okay, nobody's ever finished. Someone has got to finish. Someone's got to finish and you're the closest. So, okay, <laughs> you know. It was just different a different moment, you know. Mm-hmm. So, um, and sh- she did me the biggest favour of anyone in my entire life, you know. She've, so I finished.
1: It's those conversations, isn't it? Yeah.
0: But, you know, can you imagine that now? You know, it was, so there were the, the also the turnover of staff had, had sort of stagnated in many places, not in some of the big elite institutions, but, you know, the staff... I didn't move, you know. There weren't new members of staff. It was a, there weren't jobs actually. So, in those days, it, it, it very few people that I knew went on to, to lectureships. You know, very very few. And so for a long time, I worked as a as a jobbing researcher. You know, I went from project to project. I know people do that still, and I think it's a good thing actually. So, in some ways, the sort of empirical uh, projects that I ended up working on were the the result of working as a researcher. You know, mm. I, that's what I did. I, I, I didn't think I had any skills that would, anybody would be interested in, you know. And I remember Anne Phoenix, we mentioned it before. She introduced me at the Thomas Corn Research Centre, which I thought was, wow, a job. A job and you get a desk and a key to the, an office. Wow, incredible, what a thing. And she introduced me as, ah, this is Les. He's just joining the, set of the unit. It was, he's an urban ethnographer. I thought, wow, that sounds good. Yeah. I'll take that. That's good. I'll take that. You could actually have a job doing this stuff, you know. Whereas before, you know, I was doing. I was kind of following my passions and and loves. That's what I was doing. I mean, it wasn't always pretty. Sometimes it was really, really tough working in in, in the youth service in the 1980s in that part of London. Um, And could be brutal as well, you know, could be violent, could be brutal, could be really hard, hard times. Um, But, you know, I didn't think of myself as an urban ethnographer, you know, wow. And so, in a way, those empirical projects, so I I worked at the Thomas Corwin Research Unit with Anne and and Barbara Tizard, as you know, because you you reviewed the study Mm -hmm. in your... In your literature review, <laughs> um, uh, and then I worked for John Solomon. You know, I worked uh, I worked for jo- as jo- for John Solomon says his researcher f- for a sequence of projects, um, which was was fantastic. It was a great. I learned so much from John. Uh, very generous person. Always treated you as an equal. When it, I mean the, th- the th- thing that was funny about that was that you know I remember Michael Keith, who's also a friend, and the the book that we've just finished, the Unfinished Politics of Race, is with John and Michael and Cal Bushukrov friends I've you know I've collaborated on projects with over many years but but I I remember saying to to Michael Keith said you know I just want to know what to do I I don't know what to do John won't tell me what to do you know so I'm doing this research project on politics of race in Birmingham he's just reset to read a lot of books I said I can read books I I, I I love reading books (laughs) but I don't know what to do It, it was it was it was so I was a bit confounded by that and the openness that he had, and the, the uh, sort of equality of intelligence that he had—you know—it just was. You, 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 it was an incredible experience for me. So, all of those empirical projects really were driven from being a researcher first. So, the study that John and Tim Crabb and myself did of um, racism, anti-racism, in football culture came out of a research project. Um, and so, in a way, those empirical—that empirical, empirical dimension—was. Um, Encouraged and supported through research projects. At the same time, I'm asking those questions about: well, what's this for? What does it involve? Who does it involve? To what end? Why does it matter? So, you know, I think you're you're right in your characterization of these different strands. Um, so, one it of the, it, yeah, sometimes they they are out of they're out of whack with each other. Yeah. As well, because you know the the book which was published in the nineties. Uh, called New Ethnicities and Urban Culture, which is my PhD thesis, was actually researched mostly in the eighties. Mm. You know, so there's a little bit of the early nineties there, but partly because you know publishers had a habit of really stringing people along and messing them around in those days. Um, like it took more, it took longer to come out than than it might have done. But but yeah, no, there there are different phases and eras. You're absolutely right. And the, I think the point around voice and the question of well, t- to what end. For what purpose? Really, is a sort of it's. It happens when my dad dies in in the in 1999, and you know, uh, it's it's the story of this is told in the art of listening. So, I'm um, he, sitting. He's was he was a working class guy. Worked in a factory all his life. He uh, had a terrible terrible fear of hospitals. Like I think many people of that generation. You know, the hospital had the echo of the workhouse and all of the. You know, the sort of (laughs) disciplining institutions of life, particularly in London. He was terrified of hospitals, and I just had this awful fear of him dying alone in a place that he was terrified of. So I stayed with him through the night. Um, And uh, I remember it so vividly. I'd got the um, proofs for a project that I did with Ron Ware called Out of Whiteness, a book that didn't actually... It was kind of out of time, that project actually, in a way. Um, yeah, but it's such a
1: good book. Well, yeah. Yeah. For saying that, does it but it does exist. What's that? Does
0: it exist? It exists, yeah. yeah, yeah, it, yeah. It, exists, it exists. It exists. It was published in the early 2000s. but um, So I've got the proofs. So I thought, <laughs> what am I going to do? I'm kind of sitting up. I'm living 24 7 at the moment. I'm just not going to sleep. And uh, so I would sit there and read the proofs. Uh, through the night, you know, with a little sidelight, and, I, and I, that's that experience of sitting there reading this this book that we'd worked really hard on, trying to make it as good as it could be, um, and hearing the sound of his diminishing breaths, rattling chest. It was, it was a kind of, it was a, it was a pivotal sort of experience for me. And I thought, okay, what am I doing? What is this about? To what end? For what purpose? Um, and for whom? And I did wasn't there wasn't an answer in that moment, but it was beginning of of a, of a sort of um, yeah questioning of those things. And so I didn't realise that that was the beginning of 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 uh, you know the the focus on precisely those questions. And so I remember going to see uh, my boss at the time, C D Ruer, and said if I if I call a book the art of listening, do you think people will laugh at me? I call sociology and listeners are, do you think people will laugh at it? She went, "No, oh, I don't think so." I said, "Okay." <laughs> um, so yeah, and that it is about. Then I think that I was concerned, not because uh, yeah, I just thought, "Well, wow, okay, ha- what what does it mean to to practice this craft? Um, how 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 might we practice it? What are the the forces that bear down on it? But also, what are the opportunities to to think about?" New ways of, of, of writing, of researching, of, of, of um, involving people who are in this project of thinking together in the process itself. Um, and so, um, you know, I, I think last time I came on, which was to talk about the Migrant City book, that was as far as I'd got to up until that point of how to, you know, it was a project that took a very long time to write championship and you and i had all kinds of you know challenges in terms of it came out of a research project which actually was crushing the value of what we thought was important so we kind of split off and did this book which was about london the history of london told through 30 adult migrant lives over a period of a decade through and into the sort of post-brexit moment you know and um that was as far as i, I got with the experiment of not only Doing sociology more sociably, but also thinking about how we could push the forms and and make the people who we listen to knowledge producers and authors in their own right and in their own terms.
1: Yeah, I really appreciate that. So in terms of coming back to what we were talking about earlier in the show about um, the reasons why you um, were forced to leave Goldsmiths, I'm thinking about how... Your your sort of trajectory in that sense relates to the wider culture of academia, and I guess it would be good for the listeners to kind of I mean we talk about um, the audit culture a little bit on the show when we try to frame it um, for people that are both within but also outside of the academy to understand what it what that means for us as yeah as quote unquote workers, but um, I guess it would be really good if you could sort of talk about. The kind of early 2000s when hints of this kind of culture mm. and what, what we're seeing now in terms of the academy was coming about and what you could see at that time but also why should people that are outside of the academy or people that aren't necessarily interested in higher education that aren't students or staff why should they be interested and or be concerned about some of the things we're seeing mm.
0: well that's should really, they be they should be and I, it's a good it's a really good question first to say that I, you know, I wasn't forced to leave Goldsmiths. I chose to leave. You
1: chose to leave, and
0: I could leave.
1: Okay, when I mean when I say force, I probably mean like mor- felt morally no, or ethically I, I, that you. I
0: know. I, I, yeah. I, and I just it's important to say it. But, yeah. You know, and and because there are, th- I think there are friends and colleagues and people that I you know admire as much as any any you know mm. I admire really highly. Um, who you know, and I'm a, I'm at a point in my life now where I. I don't have young children, mm-hmm. you know. I'm not trying to, you know, blag the Guardian to give me a commission to write, you know, 500 words on sensuality in classical music, which I knew nothing about,
1: <laughs> um, because
0: they would pay me 250 quid. I'm not at that point, uh, you yeah. Know, and so, and there are lots of people who are working at Goldsmiths who are you know, in the early parts of their careers or in the middle of their careers. They can't just say okay I've had enough of this I'm off. Yeah. They just can't. They've no, got thank children you, they've I got they've yeah. got that's important it's to important to say
2: they the privilege of being able to I can make again. that choice. Yeah.
0: I could make that choice and I think sometimes some of the you know the corrosive and damaging um behavior that happens on campus is to do with people feeling like they have got little choice mm. or that they've got that they need to cling to whatever whatever footing they have. On the academic ladder as brutally as they can, mm-hmm. and as, as you know, as 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 intensely as they can. Mm-hmm. So that, that's just just to say that. But you know, going back to the early days of um of the of what we've come to call the audit culture or metric culture or metric power, as Dave Beer calls it, um, at the beginning of this process of this process, and I remember it very very well because in a way I was in a department that was. Doing well out of the meritocratic promise, I think it's a cruel promise, actually, mm. of the system itself. Um, you know, and the promise is: well, if you just do really good work, you enter into the competition, you get evaluated, and if it's really good, you'll do really well. That's how it works. Um, and there were a good few number of people who believed that, you know. Um, and I was suspicious of it from the very beginning.
1: What year are we in now?
0: So I think I'm trying to think exactly. This is the this is the l- late 90s late 90s really yeah. i'm trying to remember exactly i should have you, i should have got the nice, got nice. the dates of this right but the timeline is around those early and the, and the the um, we were talking earlier about when the bsa network magazine asked all of the members to make comments about the research assessment exercises it was called then and they ran this story cover who's ar- afraid of the rae and um uh, max farrer who's a wonderful person you know based in leeds amazing uh, amazing life as a community activist as well as a sociologist um uh i think one in one of the uprisings in the 1980s he was the only white person to be r- arrested i think i can't remember where it was now but mm. paul gilroy once told me you know one of the f- uh, max's distinctions is <laughs> he's the only <laughs> 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 um but yeah, a wonderful person, Max. Um, but he, he, he was, I think he was involved in editing the magazine at the time. And um, uh, when it came through the door, I was really shocked because nobody else, I'd said, I would said, yeah, cool, I'll write something about that, Max, because I've got thoughts about why I think this is going, you know, because it was just at its, its beginning point to that then. And I was just really shocked that nobody else sent anything in. There was like one paragraph, and they'd made a point out of the fact, well, Who's afraid of the RAE? Well, because nobody's commenting about it, maybe quite a few people are afraid about what this is going to mean. Um, And uh, I thought at that point the risk was a kind of speeded up and formulaic form of scholarship would be licensed by this this system as it became a machine. So, you know, having your RAEable, that became a thing that talked about publications, you know what what kinds of publications are are but or now referable.
1: what are and can we can we break that down yeah
0: we can i think we can and, and i started to think hold on and then you know because it's all tacit it's not explicit it's not it's not above the table it's all at the sides mm-hmm. you know and, and and maybe it changes a little bit because there are other parameters that get introduced sort of the discussion about impact later but they were it was it was the ones that were the highest on the hierarchy were usually single authored books. Single- authored anything is better than a joint authored thing. And if you're wanting to do sociable sociology, it's kind of hard to do it on your own because you know you're just talking to yourself otherwise, <laughs> you know, or working with yourself otherwise. So there's that, um, and then the uh, established um, refereed journal art journals. Uh, are the next or close to the top of the, of the hierarchy preferably single authored ones um, and I think at the time I th- the, there was one thing the thing that I thought most about at the beginning of this whole process was the imperative to do things quickly I mean I, I was at, at the beginning of um, my life really as a, as a researcher I used to get really frustrated it takes so long mm. everything takes so long you know <laughs> so you know A research project it takes two or three years to do, and then maybe two or three years to write. It takes so long, you know. Who's going to wait five years to to for this thing? Um, And I was very, very. That's partly why I did a lot of journalism. It's partly why I was just anything that was that was opening up the audience. I thought was interesting, Um, and also it was more immediate. Um, And then I started to think, well, maybe it's in the length that it takes. Um, And I think one of the things that the early days of the audit culture and the research assessment exercises it was then started to threaten was get it done now. Mm. Get it out now. Get it out quickly. Don't take time. Don't come back to it. Um, And I think, you know, I changed my view about the value of the relationship between scholarship and time. The fact that it takes a long time, I think. Um, can be connected to the value that you manage to cultivate and cohere in a project. The going back, the thinking again, the trying something else. Um, So I think that was one of the first threats. Um, It was speeding up that process um, and making people feel like they were constantly on on the rush, you know, in in a rush, in a rush to finish. Um, So we went from a situation where nobody ever finished their PhD, sometimes decades into Mm -hmm. it, Mm -hmm. to, you know, if you're not through within three three or four years, then you're a big problem, and, you know, the completion rates for our department are going to be questioned, and we won't get any more funding from the research councils. So, you know, that happens so quickly. Mm. So that was the first challenge, I, I think, the relationship between time and thinking and writing. But I think the other thing which... I I felt later was it, it's it's made us more conservative, and I think sometimes more timid about the what we want to say, um, and where we want to say it, and what forms. So it falls back onto a kind of of the formalism of of academic journal articles, um, and sort of strangely in a digital time, paper formats of you know the. I love books, you know, I've got thousands of books. I've just carried 150 boxes of books into my, you know, my new office in the Adam Smith building in Glasgow. So, I, you know, it's not, the books are magical things. Um, but it, it, strangely, it's it's made us, you know, timid and conservative around form, and I think there's a degree to which, uh, you know, and it, it will be, this will be a, a question, a, a, argue, sorry to argue rather than assert that I think it's made us timid, and conservative politically too
2: that like when when you were talking about us needing to be referable and become referable subjects right i was thinking cuz i so i am really lucky i my job as a sociology lecturer is a permanent contract i'm still on probation but it's it's you know an open ended contract as it's described and in my cover letter i wrote that i had referable publications cuz i knew that the ref i started 2 years ago so i knew that the ref was like coming up right yeah. Like and and i had to i felt like i had to be or, or, or sell myself as referable and i think it's really important to say that because i think some of some people who might be listening might think i'm supposed to be critical of this i'm supposed to be anti this at the same time as i need to find a footing and like mm. we're all trying to find a footing and i think that's part of what this does in terms of turning us into particular potentially conservative subjects potentially obedient subjects within this cycle but also we're at the whims of like we have to, we have yeah. to be level. Yeah. But the, when you were talking, I was thinking this timeline that you're charting. Well, while this is happening, I'm assuming that uh, maybe insecure contracts are rising. I'm assuming are things being outsourced. There's like obviously cleaner struggles. There's these other str- The university as a site of struggle is on multiple fronts, and I'm mm. just wondering how some of those yeah. other conditions that when you spoke about goldsmiths were at the forefront, right? Of redundancies um of people not being placed Mm. of increased workloads not just for um academic teaching staff but also for administrators etc that's all happening at the same time and so because something chantelle you said at the beginning was like how is this relevant to people outside and i think that's one of the key ways in which this plugs into a broader mechanics Mm. of i guess neoliberal kind of politics or and i'm just interested to hear like was did you see did you see this as meshed when it was all taking place,
0: or? I think I had moments. I I, no, I didn't. I certainly didn't see it all clearly as it was unfolding. I just didn't, you know. And I and I think there were, but there were parts of what, you know, there was there were moments which which, which made me want to, you know, pitch something for a newspaper. To say, yeah, but I mean, it, I got really pulled over the coals by my head of department. I published this thing in in the Guardian newspaper, which had, <laughs> I. The, the the cartoon was better than the text so it's got this picture of you know like a university don you know on all fours kind of spewing books you know and the byline was you know it might be readable but is it readable <laughs> um and I, that's that, that's the question that i'm thinking about and i remember my head of department pulled me in and gave me an absolute dressing down saying what did you think i was doing somebody you're writing a national newspaper. Don't you know that the that this that the ref that the RAE. Sorry, it was before it was the RAE before the ref. Don't you know that this is going to be a thing which will help our department and our institution rise and it will undermine the elitism of the of the Red Brick University and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, I've got absolutely slaughtered for it. You know, um, I just said that's what I think is happening, you know. Mm. 't that what we're supposed to be isn't that what we're supposed to be doing in the universities thinking about stuff you know, <laughs> um, you know as Stuart said much later that you know university isn't a critical post for critical thinking it's nothing um so um anyway so I didn't see it I didn't see see it coming but there were things about what was happening that made me feel restless and think well oh, what's this well, where's this all going and I mean I think the thing about it's important to say that the way the culture of, of knowledge production um, developed over a long period of time was that it, it started to, in a way, use the tools of good values, like trying to do the best work you can do, trying to develop a, a voice, you know. It used, it used some of those commitments and values in scholarship and turned them into kind of, um, you know, citation harvesting and individual careers, and individual ambitions, and individual measurements, individual promotions, you know. I think it's in tune with the individualization of everything which I think has happened in this moment that we call neoliberalism. Um, so I think that and there's something about that, how how easy it is to become possessed by the tools, Franz Fanon would say, you get drawn into. There's complicity in that. Mm. It's a kind of a Fanonian and a Foucauldian nightmare in that sense. Mm get drawn into it but at the same time you know i want people to have jobs mm. you know and i want people to get a footing in, in and do the work that i think is valuable in its own terms um so it's i mean I, it would be important for me to say it, you know to, I, I saw lots of people of my generation um, and older go to postgraduate conf- conferences and, pre- and, and pronounce um confidently how bankrupt the system is having benefited from it mm. to be able to be standing at the lectern talking to five hundred PhD students. And I always thought that's just I won't swear, but that's I'm not that's just indefensible and bankrupt. So it's it's it is this difficult negotiation. Mm. Um and my own way of trying to manage that is to on the one hand realize see the system for what it is and what it perpetuates, but not be possessed by the tool and not be made in its image. And sometimes that's meant saying, "Okay, I'm not doing that," or or watching other people, you know, succeed in those terms, and think actually that's not the measure of success that that I, I I aspire to, and encouraging others to as well, you know, not to hurt themselves or, you know, it gives me tremendous pleasure to watch people that I've worked with go on to do things I couldn't dream of doing. There's something in that, that I just think, oh, that's like, okay, I'll take that. That's fine. Thank, thank you very much. As a student, I worked with an undergraduate student who, you know, came to Goldsmiths, passionate, restless, you know. I didn't always, we didn't always agree, um, but I always admired her, her passion and her conviction and, and her restlessness and her openness, actually. Um, comes to my office after she's finishing her third degree, she said, I'm going to apply to do... Um, uh, a master's at Oxford. What do you think? I said, "You're yeah, great. Yeah, why not? Why not you? Mm-hmm. You know, she's a um, young woman of colour, black Londoner, first in her family to go to university. I said, yeah, why not you? So we get back back and forth and work. She sends me an application. I said, yeah, I think, actually the person you want to study with is somebody who's got a goldsmith's PhD. I think they're going to think you're great. I think you'll get in. You think I said, yeah, why not? So she applies, sure enough, she gets offered a place, she gets a scholarship to go there. She goes there. She she has a pretty rough ride. I mean, you'll you'll appreciate this, Chantelle. Not the mo- not not quite the same experience of education. But you know, I remember the day that she got her got her place and went there and she phoned me up, so oh, i said, Yeah, great. I said, You know what? You're doing something I know I I, I would I could never have done. And it's great that you are. Mm. And that's enough for me, you know. Oh, the point of the story, I, I think, is that you know, there's something about that. It goes, it goes back to where we started. You know, you we we are we are bestowed the the things that are amazing and valuable, and then the deal is, I think you carry you pass them on, and and you cultivate and you encourage. You know, in as good a conscious as, as is possible. You know, okay. um, so yeah, that's that's the point of it, really.
1: Les, could you talk us, just introduce us to the new book Mm -hmm. and what it's about? Because I think it does, like, we spoke about your um, Discover Society article Mm -hmm. earlier about, yeah, diversity, conservatism. The book, to me, I haven't read all of it, obviously, but the book, to me, seems like you're trying to make sense of um, race and ethnicity in this current moment, but also trying to make sense of the people, the change in nature of who's involved in a certain... Ca- these categories categories mm. of difference and making sense of living with difference that's mm. what it that's what it seems like to me but for the listeners it would be great to inter- introduce what the book is about
0: yeah it's called the Unfinished Politics of Race mm-hmm. and it's a collabor another collaboration with Michael Keith Kelby Shukra and John Solomus. Mm-hmm. Um and in a way each of us have been trying to think about the changing nature of both British society, its relation to its imperial past and its present in relation to questions of racism and anti-racism, community mobilisation. So in a way, the book is trying to say, well, how do we make sense of that over a long period of time and the traditions of both political mobilisation and where that happens, what forms it takes, um, what spheres it operates within, um, both in the mainstream public sphere public sphere, as well as the alternate public spheres of, you know. So it's, it goes from, you know, parliamentary democracy to literary circles and, mm. and music. Um, so, and the argument of the book is that, in, or the, the thing that we're trying to say is actually these histories matter. Mm. These places matter. Um, and in, in a way, we have to think about constantly the shifts that are happening and also the continuities that are, ca- uh, are carried through time. Because it, it feels, I mean, I remember uh, being in an event saying you know, 10 years ago, thinking, saying, you know, well, I think you know, racism is, is as destructive and powerful force in, in, in our society as, it, as it's been in my lifetime. Mm. The forms it takes are different. There are shifts. Um, and there are, so, you know, the, you mentioned the diversity. I mean, it's curious that it is on the political right Mm. where you know the most diverse cabinet can be set,
1: them, yeah. set
0: up you know or yeah, the most diverse cabinet in in British politics happens in a moment in the post-Brexit moment um in a moment of incredibly hostile border politics um and also in a in a in a moment where thinking about society you know you, your podcast is called surviving society mm. thinking about society and societal thinking is more besieged then I think it has been well. It's, it's tremendously besieged. Um, how can all those things square? I mean, how can we have Kwasi Kwarteng as mm. uh, you know Gosh. Chancellor of the Chancellor of the Exchequer, um, and, and James Cleverly actually, who I think oh, is a very guy. interesting, interesting character, and I think you know part of I suppose the the ethics of of, of I think that we all share. Amongst the four of us, is that actually you really need to pay close attention to those voices that make you want to spit, actually, <laughs> or that make you want <laughs> to. You have to really think carefully about the shape of both racist arguments and also racist justifications. We mm. have to think carefully about them, and to 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 dismiss those people as either, you know, in, in colloquial terms, as just be acting white or mm. being white somehow is it's too quick, it's too easy. Yes. There's something that's going on in our political culture that needs to be carefully understood. And, and, you know, one of the things we've tried to do in the book is to try and think about that in a, in a hard way. Um, so the language of diversity can be mobilised by those people in many other respects who are upholding, um, buttressing a system and a history that has um, is bloody and violent and exclusive and, and deeply unjust and unequal
1: les thank you so much thank you so much for that in- little introduction to the new book and thank you so much for coming on the show Catherine, thank you for guest hosting with me thanks for having me absolute pleasure um patrons we've got another um 10 minutes for you now over on the patreon stay tuned for more from katherine uh, and les but yeah les good luck in glasgow Thank you. I'm sure we'll. I'm sure we'll be taking a surviving society trip to come see you. the have a
0: spare room,
1: Yeah, and thank you so much, listeners, and we'll see you next week. Bye. Thank you for listening to Surviving Society with Sean Tao and Tiso. You can now continue the conversation with us on Twitter and Instagram. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon. If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing.